This morning, we begin the second chapter of the book of James, and I'd like to do something a little bit different today. I'd like to read the words to you as if James is preaching it. So the scripture's not going to be in front of us today. I want you to hear it and receive it as James is preaching it. You, of course, you can open the Bible and you can look at it as we're looking at the different points, but I just would invite us to hear this message because it really lends itself to James, the pastor, teaching us. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a person, a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, Please sit here, and to the one who is poor, you say, Stand over there, or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith? And has he not chosen them to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? Amen. As a pastor, James is highlighting something that should never happen in any gathering in the name of Jesus. Last week, the lesson was about what it means to exercise true religion, what worshiping the Lord looks like in real life. And James says, we are to live as people who are unstained from the world. Now he gives a more concrete example of what this looks like. Following Jesus means we give honor to everyone not just those we admire. In these words, the whole church is being indicted. One of my professors in seminary, Ralph Martin, said that in the original Greek, these verses read like James is recalling something that actually happened. Maybe something that happened personally when James was present. Two people come to church at the same time. One is honored because they are perceived to be important. And the other is dismissed because, well, nobody really cares about them. These verses have the feel of the whole class getting in trouble for what a few did. Yet the point is that the whole class allowed it to happen. Nobody stopped it or did anything differently. The outside culture got swept in and everybody accepted it as normal. If someone is being treated with prejudice outside the church, they should be safe inside the church. 
God's house should be a place where people are not judged by worldly standards. But often this practice is found in the walls where God is worshipped. James is shepherding us here. He's asking questions designed to make us think. He uses language that reminds us that we're precious and that we're a family together. He guides all of us into a timeless church that we always have to keep in front of us, which is this. God's love is the same for everyone. And each person deserves to be treated with the love we ourselves have received through the cross. So as we look through this sermon and think about it, I want to highlight what I see as his main points, allowing Pastor James to speak into our time and place, even as we understand his a little bit. First off, by naming favoritism, James is exposing our souls. You see, all of us understand being the favorite or choosing favorites, but we have to remember that choosing one person to shower attention on in one way actually reveals what we don't like. In other words, it shows our bias against those that we don't favor. We gravitate to what we hold in high esteem, And reject what we do not. Setting up a competition in which actions happen that James says shouldn't. Now, favoritism, of course, has always been part of the world as long as there have been humans. And it's natural for us to do, but it isn't something that we should perpetuate. We all have a bias, and we should do all we can to recognize those biases and fight any inclination that we have toward it if it's something that would hurt other people. James questions if those who live in the way that favor some over others are truly believers in Christ. Let's just stop there for a second. He's questioning whether or not they truly believe in Jesus if they're showing this kind of favoritism. I think a lot of this is what I call making up life. We think that people are better because they have something that we perceive as a strength. They have money or education or popularity or success or ability or charisma. And somehow we see them as more noble or more honorable. But the truth is we have no way of knowing that until we actually spend time with them and know them and see their life. Anything else is just made up. The other reality that favoritism exposes here is how then we try to control situations as a result. You sit here next to me. Oh, you stand over to the side. You get to go first. Oh, we don't have room for you. You should probably go. All of this is based on our subjective perception. Here's a quote that I couldn't stop thinking about this week in my study. What impresses us dictates us. This quote and the words of James point out that the separation we make in our minds about what is good and great and is not gets translated into actions. So what impresses you? How do you act on that? You see, the truth is favoritism is always exposed. It's always seen and felt. And James says that it causes us to become judges with evil thoughts. So let's seek the Lord about this, if this is an issue for us in our lives. 
This truth that James is preaching is found throughout scripture. God makes it clear that his people are to show his love to everyone. In fact, strangely enough, this is an affirmation that the Jewish leaders give to Jesus a few times. Because he treats everyone with dignity. And so they say to him, you know, we can see that you don't show partiality. We can see that you aren't swayed by others. The term in verse 1, acts of favoritism, in the Hebrew means to lift up someone's countenance. It originally meant to accept a person without judgment. But then it came to be made uh, negative. It came to mean deferential treatment to those who were wealthy, like it's used here. So James is saying, you lift some people up, but you hold others down. I think that one of the things that makes the Bible so real is that it shows how flawed people are changed by the Spirit of God. Peter learned in a vision of unclean animals how the Gentiles were also created by God and were going to receive the gospel equally. Paul devoted his life to persecuting believers, but when Jesus stopped him and showed him the truth, Paul begins to build the church instead. In the Old Testament, God accuses the Israelites of behaving with inequity, and he says this in Leviticus, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. I listened to a powerful podcast this week about a man named Christian Picciolini, who was part of the white power movement that he helped create as a youth in the 80s and 90s. He was indoctrinated into violence as a skinhead and immersed in a world of fear that taught him how to act with hate toward all those who did not look like him. He believed this country needed to purge those who threatened the way of life that white people were meant to have. And when he had a son of his own, he decided to seek a different way. He came to see how damaging his life was, how he had harmed many, how what he had begun had grave consequences that continue to this day. And now he leads what's called the Free Radicals Project, which is a global extremism prevention that seeks to promote love around the world, not hate. The podcast I heard was so good because he was talking about how he sees it as his mission to engage white supremacists. He says, I know you. I get you. I was you. And I know that there is so much hurt and pain and anger underneath all of the stuff that you're doing. But it's not okay. He wants to bring intervention and help repair the brokenness that he knows is there. James knows we can change. That is his message. Those who make distinctions, who act out of their judgments of others, can make a different choice by the grace of God. And God wants us to change. He wants to make us more like him. We have hope in a Savior who continues the work of transforming hearts and minds. So let's keep working and praying with him on that. Another emphasis here from James is that only God is worthy of praise. He calls Christ their glorious Lord. And what he's saying by that is he's saying 
When you show favoritism to rich people, you're actually taking honor away from the Lord who deserves your best. We show what we believe about God and how we treat others. That's why the church has often been a place of disappointment and hurt. Because whenever anything or anyone is elevated above God, there is damage done. Here, James is describing the honoring of money over the poor, which has led to major upheaval within the church forever. The love of money is the root of all evil, and we know that this is true inside and outside the church. While there are too many examples to delve into, we have several in our own history. In the 18th century, the Church of England was so elitist and inhospitable that John Wesley took to preaching outdoors in fields and graveyards and any place a congregation could meet. He led many to Christ. He lifted up the entire culture of England and great social reform followed. And he reluctantly founded a movement called Methodism, which was built on serving the poor. Yet only a hundred years later, a man named William Booth and his wife Catherine were ministering to people on the streets, hoping to bring them to church. And he writes that Methodism had become so respectable, so wealthy, that his friends on the street were not welcome. So he keeps trying to bring them in. And finally, they say, you know, we probably just shouldn't do this. And so the Salvation Army is born. In free Methodism, one of our founding principles is freedom of the poor to be treated with dignity in the church and with justice in the world. Because the first free Methodists were protesting how rich people could pay for the best pews, leaving the poor to find seats wherever they could. And we celebrate our heritage, yet we continue to work hard and intentionally about what it means to live this out. Sadly, today in our churches, money is still a dividing line. Those who have wealth can be given more power and voice than those who do not. I have witnessed pastor friends in my life be heavily influenced by those in their congregation who had a lot of money. Sometimes it's so that the pastors themselves and their families can benefit. And sometimes it's so that the pastors can get something that they want for the church that they seem somehow that they can't trust God for it. And when this happens, when worldly values are upheld in the body of Christ, the glory of the Lord is not honored. That honoring him has been replaced by honoring humans. You see, when we come together in the presence of the king of kings, there is no distinction in his eyes for who we are. He shines brighter than any treasure we have or could bring to him. And in his presence, all earthly importance and earthly inferiorities should be forgotten as we worship him. So may we continue to give him glory. James also points out how God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith. But the audience has dishonored the poor with their actions. Jesus comes for everyone. He begins his ministry saying that his mission was to preach the good news to the poor, communicating that God cares about those that no one else cares about. He chose Mary and Joseph as a family. He identifies with the humble. He continued to live that way as an adult. 
Foxes have dens and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere, he says, to lay his head. And in this story, Jesus would be with the shunned person on the floor. There's a Canadian artist named Timothy Schmaltz, and he creates large sculptures and puts them all over the world. There's a bronze that he's made that is quite powerful. It's a homeless person under a blanket on a bench. And at first glance, it seems to be a statement calling us to compassion. And then we see the feet, which bear the nail marks of the crucifixion. And we realize that the homeless guy under the blanket is the Lord. The artist said that he's devoted to glorifying Christ, hoping to bring a depth of understanding of the incarnate God who lives with us, no matter where we are. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for our sakes, so that by his poverty we might become rich. God is generous to all of us. James is not saying the poor are better. He is saying there needs to be equal treatment of the two groups. To treat the least among us with disdain is to treat Christ that way. James's last point is for the church to think about what they were doing. He said, you know, cozying up to the rich doesn't really make sense. Remember, it's the rich who oppress you, who drag you into court, and who blaspheme the name of Jesus that you are called by. For us to get this, we need to understand the place and time in which they live. It's different than what we know in our culture. The Roman world of the first century had a fairly rigid social strata. There was little possibility for advancement. There was no middle class. Wealth was important, but not as much as the social order. On top of the pyramid was the emperor and the oldest Roman families. They had little regard for anyone underneath them. Those who came next were wealthy because of some kind of business, merchant, banker. Together, those two groups made up one-tenth of one percent of the population. While there were a few percent who were gaining wealth and another few who had land and some wealth, 90% of the population was what we think of as poor. They had no property, few possessions, and their money went to necessities. They would have made up the majority of James's audience in the early church. It was expected that the poor would honor the rich, and they may even be called on to spend some of their own money that they didn't have to do so. Those who were wealthy expected, of course, to be honored above others because they knew they were the best. They knew they were entitled to the best of everything and deserved great respect that those under them did not. So what James is saying here is revolutionary. We read it and we're convicted perhaps by how we treat others, but James is putting the social order much like his brother had on its head. And he is preaching that the church should be the place where nobility and the slave sit side by side in worship. That nobility and the slave should be side by side in serving Christ. But the culture was obsessed with flaunting wealth and they were sliding into moral decay and they honored only a few. And that that mindset was threatening the community that Jesus created. 
And while the believers were fawning over the rich, the rich were using their status to oppress them and people like them. And James is telling them, stop doing that. Stop siding with the people who perpetuate the system that keeps you poor and persecutes the church. Have you ever been in a situation where you trusted someone who turned out to be actively working against you? Where were you blinded by someone you thought was great, but they ended up harming you? James is saying something that we should listen to. A person who looks great on the outside but works to hurt others, especially the poor, is not somebody we should favor. Because everyone is welcome in God's house, but we have to have discernment. Let's not allow evil in our midst. Have you ever heard yourself saying, Yeah, you know, that person's just not my favorite. It's true, we don't resonate with everyone. That's okay. But James reminds us of an unwavering biblical truth that we have to treat everyone with the same honor. The rich and the poor, the successful and the struggling, those who can help us and those who need the most help and have nothing to offer us. Jesus said the person we don't like, even the one we would consider an enemy, are the ones we treat as well as the people we love the most. These verses give us a great truth we must always remember, that our identification with Christ and his cross makes us embrace everyone, even those who exhibit something on the outside we don't value. Here it's poverty, but it could be anything that we just can't stand. We are called into God's church out of our own poverty and sin. So let us welcome all who would seek him and let us work to bring change to hearts and minds because that's how lives and systems and societies are changed by the spirit of God. In this way, we honor all people, but we especially honor our Lord. Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.